While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. that there's a group of people challenging whether or not that happy birthday song is actually under copyright is is it like that's such a prominent urban myth apparently the last valid copyright expired in the 60s and was never properly refiled and there's substantial well there's substantial evidence that that claims that the copyright was never valid there's a forthcoming documentary about it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew, and apparently anybody will make a documentary about anything these days. Yep. Yep. And I've run uh, into like, do you are do you have people who recommend that you watch like documentaries on Netflix and stuff? Like, they've been watching a lot of dec- documentaries, and they and they have ones to recommend, or they've just idly been watching documentaries. There, I know people who watch a lot of documentaries. People, I, I wish I watched more documentaries. I like them. Do you not? No, I think they're fine. I just, I feel like the term documentary gives gives whatever it is that you're watching a certain amount of, I don't know, it, it implies some kind of objectivity or, or oh, the, that's false. The, the people who have been, <laughs> the people who are doing it like have a certain like devotion to facts or whatever. Like I th- I think people like you can look at a newscast on CNN or Fox news or whatever, whatever side of the aisle you happen to be on and, um, and say, okay, this, this network has a conservative bent. This, this network has a liberal bent. This network just likes to do bad work in service of <laughs> eyeballs <laughs> talking about CNN with that one. Yeah. Okay. I make sure we don't pull any punches. Um, but I, I feel like people don't have their guard up as much when they watch a documentary about stuff. It depends. And that might that might be totally false, but for me, it depends on what the documentary is. Um, if you're watching like Planet Earth, like what's the bent there that Earth is cool? Yeah, like look at these zebras. Look at these I zebras. Think. <laughs> it's it's pretty anti-zebra hater, I guess, is their their stance, right? That's well, because there are platform. there are documentaries like that that are just like. Look at the world around you and how cool is this place? Check out these blind lizards. Yeah. And it just says facts about lizards. Like lizard facts. Lizard facts. The documentary. But by being by and you have stuff like that and you have stuff like the the up series that's just like let's check in with these people every seven years and see what they're up to. Like there are a lot of documentaries that do really cool stuff that mm-hmm. is really interesting. Mm-hmm. But I think that the term documentary and like the the legitimate stuff that's really cool gives the the like Michael Moore stuff a level of credibility that it doesn't deserve. <laughs> well, and but he's he's a very volatile example or very. Uh, I'm picking, yeah, I'm picking, I'm cherry picking an extreme example. But I will say that some of the documentaries I've enjoyed the most have been biased or have been at least problematic, if that makes sense. Like there's one called The Art of the Steel, which is all about uh, an art museum in the Philadelphia area and how it was founded and where its collection went and the recent campaign that ended up moving this private collection inside the city limits. And it's a pretty. I think it kind of comes down on one side of the fence and the ways in which it fails to illuminate the other side, I think are pretty interesting. (laughs) Like that is a, that coming out of that film, that gives me just as much to talk about as whether or not, you know, if it had been a more objective piece of cinema, I might not have had as much to say. Yeah. And then, and then you get into the whole thing about like, there are not necessarily two sides to every argument. Like sometimes people like, 
anti-vaxxers are just wrong <laughs> perhaps yes and giving both sides no not perhaps sometimes oh, sorry that's not that was not a perhaps about anti-vaxxers that was a perhaps <laughs> about like documentaries where there's one side sorry <laughs> <laughs> so, so sometimes that you have to deal with that false equivalency where you're giving both quote unquote sides equal weight when they don't deserve it so it's it's a whole thing one of my favorite documentaries is that Banksy documentary that may or may not even be a real documentary. Well, no exit? Yeah. Uh, exit through the gift shop. Not exit no through exit. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Sartre's documentary about hell. Yeah. <laughs> no exit. Check out our episode on Sartre's hell documentary. I heard he actually went to hell. He talked to Satan. Yeah. Which is a, it's a pretty good get It's about him. him, Satan, and two other people getting trapped in a room. It's a pretty good documentary. So this is about books, yeah. I guess, this, this podcast. Yeah. Not, so, not so much about documentaries. No. Um, and every week, for those of you who are just joining in, I, I suppose, um, one of us reads a book that we've never read before and then explains it to the other one. And that that the the ignorant person in the equation is like the listener surrogate. And so you <laughs> you get to hear about the book just as just as we will. I think, but there are times when both of us are the ignorant person. I did a lot of times. <laughs> and I think, I think we're going to run into that today. So I just kind of wanted to put that out there. Sure. Okay. Hit me with what you read that's going to make us both sound like ignorant idiots. I read Go Tell It on the Mountain by James Baldwin, a writer whose name I'd heard many times before, but in my wo- woeful ignorance... Uh, had not really placed. I, I'm ashamed to say that I went to a college with an esteemed English department and had escaped it without studying James Baldwin on its on its campus. So, so okay. Uh, now that now that you've done your homework on James Baldwin, what can you tell me about him? I can tell you that he is a prominent uh, Black American author um, who is an essayist, poet, playwright, novelist, and uh, activist. If he would have accepted that term. Okay. Uh, he was born in the 1920s in Harlem uh, and then left for France in the late 40s as an expatriate. He didn't like, you know, how blacks and he by that time he was identifying as a bisexual. Uh, he didn't like how gays were being tweeted, treated in America, how they were being tweeted in the 1940s. <laughs> uh, so he left for France, came back during the civil rights movement uh, for a period of time in the late 50s and early 60s. And then moved back to France after that, settling in the 1970s, and then was there until he died, I think. Um, he may have come back to the U.S. a couple times during that period, but he was primarily a resident of France. Sure. Uh, what else do you want to know? I can t- I, I got a whole list of stuff. Where, where should I take this? Well, I, just, I, I know a few things about him, like his his evolution as a person. Like, he... His mother divorced his father at an early age and married a uh, married a preacher, Baptist minister. Yep. Yeah, Baptist minister, and and that guy treated Baldwin like James Baldwin in particular. He treated him badly, like among all of his siblings, and he had quite a few. He treated him particularly badly, and um, this in part drove his conversion to Pentecostalism at age 14 but then by the time he was 17 he had kind of become disillusioned with the idea of christianity altogether and so he has a really interesting relationship with religion and the role that it plays in people's lives and specifically the role that it played in uh, african-american people's lives because he saw it he saw it two ways basically is he saw it he saw how it could be a set like a a source of strength for people like teaching them how to persist in the face of adversity and how to find strength to like rise up and speak out against like oppression. But he also saw that it could be a source of oppression. Like there's that vein of Christianity that says, you know, suffer now and you'll get your reward in the afterlife. And that's, that's a, that's a vein of it or an aspect of it that he saw as really damaging. Well, yeah, and and that Baptist tradition and and some elements of the Pentecostal Church that are very strict biblicists, I think is the mm-hmm. right term. I'm learning some very basic theology as I do. You read mean this like book. biblical, like people who take the Bible pretty literally. literally? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I I come from that stock. So yeah. So that so you could you could say biblical literalists. You could say fundamentalists. I think fair enough. Okay. Hinting at some of the same stuff. Um, I guess the trick there is is accidentally uh, name dropping the wrong sect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is tough. There are lots. There are lots of little tiny splinter groups in there. Yeah. And subgroups. <laughs> uh, but you're right. This idea that there's a guilt. We'll get into the book itself in, in just a few minutes. But guilt and guilt versus change and salvation is the primary theme, at least for me, in this book. Uh, and you're right that that is kind of this thing that could potentially be holding back. Um, African-Americans at the turn of the 20th century or the mid-20th mm-hmm. century. Uh, yeah. If they subscribe to this this theology that teaches them that they will find salvation later after all their suffering, how is it holding them back from, from absolving themselves of suffering in the current time, right? Yeah. Um, and there's a quote of his that I really like that, that I can go for it. read here. He just, he wrote once, if the concept of God has any use, it is to make us larger, freer, and more loving. If God can't do that, it's time we got rid of him. Yeah. So he never, he never went as far as like self-identifying as an atheist, but he did have pretty significant problems with organized religion as a whole. I think, I think he was pretty conflicted about it. Yes, I would say so. <laughs> Probably both because both because of his um his you know African American heritage and because of his status as as somebody who identified as a gay or a bisexual like like of course religion introduces a whole bunch of extra problems for both of those groups. <laughs> yes. And especially a a strict religion as well, right? Um and I think he also had similar problems with the American Dream, which is a, a little more subtle in this book than I think in some of his later writings. But I think he he sensed the inherent unfairness and the inherent stringing along that the American Dream was was kind of grafting onto the African American population. Yeah. Um, of this sense of yes, you can you can rise up and and get yours, except race you know accept this construct of race accept this country's history of oppression um and he has i think i'm sorry sorry, there's a there's a writing there's an article um that came out after he did a debate about the effect of the american dream um on it's called the american dream and the american negro uh he kind of told this story about robert kennedy on his you know wrote on the road to his bid for the white house saying that in 40 years there might be a black president which is surprisingly prescient um, but obviously struck baldwin wrong in saying that they'd been there for 400 years and mm-hmm. how nice of it, how nice it was for this uh white man who was on his way to the white house possibly uh to come by and tell us that if we were good we could have one in four you know have a president in 40 years yeah, and, and that and kind of delayed that, gratification uh, and delayed success, and the perpetual, you know, pushing off of expectation, right? And like sitting on your laurels because someday you'll get it. Yeah, it's hard it's that, for a man to swallow, I imagine. I I think and and people in general, including you know middle class white dudes like you and I, are starting to encounter now what i think that baldwin and a lot of people like him were encountering you know 50 60 years ago is that like the american dream is starting to ring a little hollow and you know maybe if you just you know stick to it and work hard you're not going to be rewarded for it like maybe you're not going to do better than your parents did it's the the inequality has shifted so it's just rich white guys who are benefiting from it instead of just white guys <laughs> i guess i think we have to be careful about what how you know where we're aligning our troubles but yes i see your point no no i mean i'm i'm not i'm not saying that what we're dealing with is in any way comparable yes but right. um and then you know 
acknowledging that we have privilege and trying to check it and maybe not always being successful is a hallmark of the show at this point. So. <laughs> yeah, it took a real, like, I would say 20 or 30 episodes ago, we took a real dive It might have been into, Fifty Shades of Grey, like... Yeah. Just being, Changed like, us forever. People are, like, people are just people and... Don't be jerks. Is that what we said, <laughs> like, a couple weeks ago? Like, yeah. people are who they are. Let's not be jerks about it. That yeah, I think that I we probably said something like that. I hope that we did. It sounds like a good sentiment. So, <laughs> so Bal, you know, Baldwin is someone who, like a lot of the authors that we cover on this show, I read and go, "Oh man, I should know a lot more of what he wrote." Yep. Like yep. I am missing out on a whole swath of my own country's history that could better inform how I feel about today if I yeah. if I'd only known a bit more James Baldwin. And Go Go Tell It on the Mountain is his first novel. Yes. And there are decades and decades of work that follow it. So we're really just tapping the tip of the iceberg in this in this show, I think. Yeah, and like I said, this one only kind of scratches the surface of race relations. It's it's much more concerned with uh the individual the kind of semi-autobiographical version of himself named John Grimes uh, who is dealing with faith and the his community of faith uh, and his family is also intertwined in that community uh, so it's you get hints of white violence and and white oppression and and by hints I mean outright events that do happen but it, it is not about <laughs> it is not about uh, literally the plots of the story like the plot of the story is not about john overcoming some you know conflict with whites in his present day if that mm-hmm. makes sense yeah um do so you want to dive into the book i guess we can well, his, I, I just wanted to bring up that his second novel which is oh, called yes. giovanni's room is about white people like the people he writes about like the people he writes from the perspective of are white people so his his and and that one is is even more concerned with homosexuality and bisexuality than go tell it on the mountain i think yes and it just it it's just an example of the the kinds of themes that he's addressing are not explicitly african american issues no uh definitely not in that book i think it's i want to read uh notes on a native son or notes from a native son mm-hmm. his first nonfiction collection uh, which critiques, in in addition to a bunch of other essays, critiques previous African-American authors like Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, mm-hmm. and uh, a mentor of his, Richard Wright, who wrote Native Son, uh, and kind of says that those stories aren't up to snuff, <laughs> which is pretty bold, <laughs> uh, and yeah. kind of caused a rift between him and Richard Wright. And so I think even from the get-go, there's this sense of Baldwin as someone who does not see the thing the world around him as good enough and and mm-hmm. even some of the people who came before him as good enough i think that drove him to france in a way he did he didn't just want to be part of what he called a you know an american negro context he wanted to kind of get out of that and just be a writer if that makes yeah. sense no it totally does i mean there's there are people who can accept like baby steps in the direction of the thing that they want. And then there are people who say, no, like it's not good enough. Like I need, I need it to happen right now because it needs to happen. You know what? You know yeah. I mean? Yeah. Like, and, and within the context of civil rights, I think it's worth noting that Baldwin fell somewhere in between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. I think leaning mm-hmm. more towards Martin Luther King, he was not like a militant activist. But I think he was a little more pointed with his criticism than King would have been. Uh, yeah, like like a little less, you know. I I see this happening one day, and a little more like we need this to we need this to just be the thing. Yes. Now. Yes. So, <laughs> and and I, I could be woefully misrepresenting some writings of Baldwin, so I apologize. Oh, totally. Please write in and tell us what we don't know. I yeah, really I mean, that's appreciate a, that's that. That's the thing about this podcast. <laughs> we just misrepresent all kinds of stuff. <laughs> So let's misrepresent a uh, critical work of the American canon. Okay, hit me. What's uh, this book about? So this book is about John Grimes and his family in the 1930s uh, and a little bit into the past. Uh, Grimes is basically a surrogate for James Baldwin. His mother, uh, he lives with his mother. 
and unbeknownst to him, his stepfather, um, his stepfather Gabriel is a minister in a small church uh, mm-hmm. called the Temple of the Fire Baptized, uh, which is described as a uh, not the largest church in Harlem, but not the smallest, uh, and was taught to John as the holiest and best of them all. <laughs> Okay. So that should tell you what he's got there. He too, like Baldwin, is uh, kind of grossly mistreated by his father for reasons unbeknownst to him. Uh, you get a little sneak peek of John's and slash James Baldwin's uh, sexuality when there's like he talks about him in Sunday school, and oh, I'm gonna find the quote real quick. He he was distracted by the new teacher Elijah. <laughs> Like there's okay. just a little line where you get a sense that his he's 13 or 14 at the time and he kind of becomes attracted to this boy Elijah or this young man Elijah. Mm-hmm. And nothing really – they don't really go much further into that relationship. There's a later scene where uh, the two of them are friends and, and have – they wrestle in the church, which is simultaneously like supposed to be a little bit erotic and also – uh, echo a biblical story of Jacob that I don't know because um, I'm woefully <laughs> underread in my Bible yeah, studies. I, I think any kind of wrestling is a little bit erotic, well, <laughs> whether, whether, whether the wrestlers want to admit it or not. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Stone Cold Steve Austin would let you say that, but <laughs> you're probably right. I look into his eyes and I would... he. I would know that he would know. I'd know? let the Undertaker <laughs> take me anywhere, is what Stone Cold Steve Austin said. Do you smell okay. what the Rockets cooking? It's next day it's, waffles. It's yeah, he's making you breakfast. <laughs> CM Punk, more like put on some CM Funk. Oh God. Okay, moving on. Moving on. Uh, so the whole first chapter is from John's perspective kind of over close third person and you get the sense that it's going to be a coming of age novel like a building's roman and i'm not sure if i totally buy that because we don't stay with john through the whole book uh this first chapter goes through it's his birthday he's not getting a lot of attention from his family his mom gives him some money to go out and spend on himself uh he goes to a movie and the whole time he's wrestling with his father's view of the world which is that you know white people are evil uh irrepentant sinners there are plenty of other black uh black people who are sinners also in the city of new york and you got to be careful or else you'll fall into sin Mm -hmm. and he kind of hates his father's view of the world but he also hates that he has such hatred for his father like he's very conflicted about this uh he goes to see a movie uh that is he also sees is pretty sinful and he's not quite sure what to feel about it and he comes home and his younger brother roy uh, has been stabbed in he doesn't die but he's been stabbed uh in a conflict with between him and some uh black boys and, and a group of white boys mm-hmm. and that creates this big fight within his family that includes his father gabriel his aunt florence and his mom elizabeth and you can kind of see that uh, gabriel may or may not have wished it was john who got hurt because he doesn't feel as strongly about John as he does about his own son, Roy. Mm-hmm. Um, you can kind of see the Florence's Gabriel's sister. You can you can see their tense relationship, and you can kind of see how he treats his wife, Elizabeth. So that sets up the family structure, which then in the next three chapters, it's all taking place during this one tarrying service on a Saturday night. Do you know what that is, Andrew? I have no idea. It's this, and I don't really know what it, I didn't really know what it was either before I read this book. So <laughs> for the, for those who know more, please, again, write in. Um, it's this Saturday evening service that consists largely of just being in a room together with no actual like ministry or, or readings from scripture, but some song and the opportunity to be spoken to. Uh, by the Lord in whatever way it moves you. Uh, and there's, you know, there's crying and there's speaking out loud and some people might speak in tongues and, you know, whatever happens. I'm not I'm not sure. Um, and it's called the tarrying service, I think, because you're waiting for something before the, the next morning. Right, right. The next so morning, T-A-R-R-Y-I-N-G. Yes. yes. Tarrying. Okay, cool. Um, so during that service, you get three prayers, one from 
Aunt Florence, one from Gabriel, and one from uh, John's mom, Elizabeth. And each of those chapters is like a little character study on that person um, and their background, how they came to New York, uh, what their life was before this book began. Mostly each of them have a particular fall or fall from grace in their point of view and what led to that. Uh, and that's where that's where the bulk of the book is, which kind of leads me to believe I don't necessarily feel like this is John's book as much as it is a a, a family portrait, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of wraps up because I'm doing the broad overview, overview. We can go back to details in just a second. No, that's fine. But then it kind of centers back on John in the end and his own where he ends up at the uh, during that tarrying service. So I, I've, I've kind of lost track of John after I got really far afield in the chapters in the middle. That would be one critique of the book, I guess. But. Does does the book kind of use John as a way to get into this world? And then after you're yeah. in there, it starts exploring other characters a little bit? Yeah, I think so. And I think considering that this is kind of autobiographical for Baldwin, this was written, it was published in 53 i believe or at least it was accepted for publication in 53 so he was 30 ish at the time Mm -hmm. and i could see it being a pretty not evocative but kind of a chance for him to expunge and explore his own feelings on his faith and his family's faith yeah um by taking a look at some of the people that that led him to where he was in his life if that makes sense no i just i I think that structure is kind of interesting because to to bring it to a more contemporary and barely related example like i think i think orange is the new black has done a good job of that (laughs) okay go ahead by well because you know you spend like if you watch the beginning of that show it's about piper chapman who is of course the surrogate for the person who wrote the book upon which the show is based and so you expect her to be like your primary protagonist and you expect the show to follow her most of the time. And it does. But then you get to the second season, which she is barely in, like comparatively speaking. Mm-hmm. And you realize that she is just a surrogate to bring the audience who is like unfamiliar with the setting into the world. And then, you know, to begin exploring the characters who are in there, who like if the show is just about those characters from the get go, maybe we wouldn't have been able to connect with, or we wouldn't, I don't know, like our introductions to them would not have felt organic and maybe would have felt off putting. So yes, I, I, <laughs> no, I know, I know exactly I, what you're saying. Yeah. I guess I, I'm kind of from you getting the sense that Baldwin is doing the same thing here by Beginning the book with a character, ending the book with a character, like he is ostensibly the focal point, but he is not around as much as you might expect him to be if he was the actual protagonist of the story. Yes. Uh, I think the three characters that he explores kind of afford a sense of where do we go from here Mm -hmm. by the book's close. Like John is the first, he's in the first generation of his family that has not lived in the South. And I think by the time when Baldwin wrote this book, he had never even been to the South. So there's this New York sensibility of this, you know, dirty city of of sin and, you know, hive, like a hive. Of, like a wretched hive of scum and villainy. Thank you for finishing my Star Wars quote. Okay. Um, <laughs> that is representative of of this kind of, abhorrent version of the American dream where things were promised us and it's perhaps even worse than we thought it was and we don't know what to do with it, right? Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a quote somewhere in the book that uh, the North promised more than the South, but just like the South, it it only gave a little bit of what it promised and then gave us a lot more that we didn't want kind of yeah. sentiment. Yeah. Um, so... Gabriel and Florence's mother was born into slavery and then was freed by northern soldiers. And then the rest of them, uh, Florence and Gabriel, kind of lived in the South with their mother for a good long time. Gabriel became a preacher after a pretty intense, like, personal rebirth after a 
life as a vagabond and womanizer and drunkard up until he was 21. Mm-hmm. And he goes right from there into being a fervent uh, Bible-thumping preacher uh, who seems to feel like he is a chosen servant of the Lord and has a blessed bloodline, um, which kind of leads to his broken relationship with John um, yeah. because he's not actually that's, his own son. That's the, I mean, that's the way it goes is you, you know, the converted person, like their faith is much more devoted, much more intense than the person who was just kind of born into it. And I definitely like, I, w- I was raised Northern Baptist, which is different from Southern Baptist in a lot of ways, but um, I just, I ran into a lot of people who like their, their stories were that way. Like I hit the bottom of the barrel. Yes. And then I found God. Yes. And then stuff was better after that. And, and those people, those people were, were far more willing to attribute, you know, everything good that happened in their lives was, was because of God. Every bad thing that happened in their life was because they were being like their faith was being tested or something like there were, there was no aspect of their story that was not attributable to some higher power. Yeah, which which has a beautiful humility to it, but also is problematic some for for some people when it comes to taking responsibility. And I think that's one of the things that this book explores. Uh it's not afraid to outright imply that quote unquote holy men are not as holy as they appear or mm-hmm. act. Uh, from a variety of, of perspectives, like Gabriel, when you meet him earlier in the book, he's beating his son who was already stabbed by people. He's cursing at his wife and his sister. He's, you know, treating his uh, adopted son terribly. And then you get into his chapter and you meet him and he's a drunkard and a womanizer. <laughs> but then he's still kind of tortured by the uh the expectations laid on him by his mother he is still a black man in the white south and is tormented by that right uh and then after he has his big conversion he's still not a perfect man he has a fall even after his conversion mm-hmm. um he has a, an affair with a woman that he was working with and ends up fathering a son who then grows up and ends up uh, dying in in a, in a fight in Chicago, and his wife at the time kind of knew about it, and she, when his son dies, she gets him to confess to it, and it's this like terrible secret that he later feels like he's atoned for by taking in John and take in marrying John's mother Elizabeth, and this kind of hypocrisy within men of of the cloth is something that Baldwin seems to be going after pretty hard. Um I don't know that you have anything to comment on that, but <laughs> uh, just just I you know for for all of the all of the examples you talk about like all of the behaviors that you just listed like I can I can take people from the church that I went to as a kid and like put faces to acts, Mm, mm -hmm. you know, like like there's the, there's the guy who is like the, the wild rebellious, like motorcycle riding youth who later became a pastor. There's the guy who was the pastor who was later run out of town on a rail for having a relationship with, you know, one of the, you know, one of the members of his congregation. It's just, these people are people, yes, but they have trouble admitting that they're people or they want to they want their lives to have some break in them, like between when they were sinners and and when they became godly or like when they were godly and when they succumb to you know to whatever worldly pleasures or whatever it is it's that, a it's a way to compartmentalize. Yeah, your own actions, and and people do that without the help of religion all the time. So oh, I don't definitely. Want... <laughs> but the, the people who do it because of religion can, and I don't, I don't want to impugn anyone who believes anything. My personal 
belief and you can argue with this if you want to is like i don't care what you believe as long as you don't try to force other people to believe what you believe Mm. Mm. and i know that that kind of evangelism is you know can be a core part of some religions and and i think those are the branches of of christianity or whatever religion you want to name that i that i have the most trouble with but yeah it's it's in a way it kind of feels like an easy way out you know like you can it's not i did this it's the devil made me do this or it's it's not i did this it's god helped me do this and you sort of there's a layer or kind of a wall between you and responsibility for your actions that gets put in there that i think is i don't know that that is that can be unhelpful. Well, and and I think there's something to this particular faith that's in the book that is interesting in that it it does not subscribe to a uh, a baptism an, an an infant baptism. It subscribes to a baptism by you know a profession of faith. Um, yeah, that's what we did. Which is which is an adult or at least young adult practice, right? Yeah. We, we didn't do, um, we didn't do baby sprinkling. We didn't, you know, when, when you're old enough and you say, I want to be baptized. Is when it happens. Yeah. Which, which is its own interesting to make, to be able to make that choice and then decide that that's how you're going to view your actions from here on out is, is an interesting thing to wrestle with. Yeah. Um, Cause like, I, I think it happened to me when I was 11, 11 or 12 hmm. and, you know, old enough to know some things, way too young to know most things. <laughs> like, so you put that you put that kind of thing in the hands of a kid, really. To take it out of heavy town for a quick second, like thinking about that big life faith decision that you make at thirteen or fourteen, we let eighteen year olds vote. We let eighteen year olds like vote for Congress people and presidents. <laughs> What are we doing? <laughs> well, because, yeah, think back personally to where you are now, and some 18 year old made the decision that put you on that path. Like, oh my God, how would do you we trust live with just any some, of our choices? I know. Would you trust some random kid to make that choice for you? No, but that was you. The and life you did I'm it. on <laughs> was determined by an 18 year old. <laughs> like, a 17 year old chose what college I went to. I don't know. Yeah. <sighs> Good job, kid. Good job, past me. <laughs> I hope you like it. Hope you like where we are now. Uh, future Andrew's always having to deal with past and present Andrew's <laughs> shenanigans. That poor guy. <laughs> Even you do this on a day-to-day level. Oh, stayed up too late. Oh, I had a couple too many beers. Thanks, past Craig. Yeah, Ugh. good job. Good job, idiot. Terrible, terrible, If only you had known then what you knew now. (laughs) That is basically the crux of my life. If only I knew then what I know now. (laughs) Um, To get back to the the book for a second, I think one of the interesting ways that Baldwin kind of creates this world that these characters inhabit is the language of the book. And not reading Baldwin's other work, I don't know as this is true or not. It feels very biblical. Like the text itself is written in a voice, especially in the in the prayer chapters, mm-hmm. that feels very not cribbed, but in the manner of the King James Bible, right? Um, sure. I want to pull an example from Gabriel's uh, conversion, if I can, in just a second. Um, once I find the spot, oh no! Well, you, while you look for the spot, I just want to point out that the name of the book "Go Tell It on the Mountain" is a you know it's a spiritual song. Yes. So I mean that that biblical connection is over before the reader even cracks the cracks the spine, you know. Yeah, and there's there's actual biblical texts sprinkled throughout the book, be it hymns that they're singing, be it uh, snippets of psalms or hymns at the beginning of chapters or italicized text throughout the book that is very clearly quotes um, from the Bible. But this is uh, when Gabriel, he's in the South, he's had sex with a harlot and is uh, feeling kind of terrible about where he is in his life. Um, 
and he kind of collapses down next to this tree that he's kind of made a landmark as to when he's going in and out of town to do sinful things. Like (laughs) every time he passes it, it's like, oh, well, I'm going to town now. Bad things are going to happen, right? He could make the choice to turn back from that tree is kind of what he's saying. Gonna go get a Chipotle burrito. Yep. Oh, I could I could totally not go to get a double down today. Gotta account for my sins. Oh, that's, oh man. <laughs> uh, so at the end of the passage, it says, When he heard this singing, which filled all the silent air, which swelled until it filled all the waiting earth, the heart within him broke, and yet began to rise, lifted of its burden, and his throat unlocked, and his tears came down as though the listening skies had opened. And later he says, I looked at my hands and my and my hands were new. I looked at my feet and my feet were new. And I opened my mouth to the Lord that day and hell won't make me change my mind. And yes, there was singing everywhere. The birds and the crickets and the frogs rejoiced. The distant dogs leaping and sobbing circled in their narrow yards and roosters cried from every high fence that here was a new beginning, a blood washed day. Uh, and that, that type of rhetoric is the primary voice of the book i would say like there are are sections that are more realistic as we describe kind of domestic scenes or actual you know plot points that happen between the characters but especially because those three middle chapters are described as prayers and as religious experiences for those characters they can take on this heightened language at the drop of a hat I almost got lost in a couple of the chapters just knowing where and when the characters were because they moved so fluidly in and out of this language. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's to the strength of the book, but it definitely required a lot of extra work for me, the reader, just to kind of decipher what was real and quote-unquote real and what was spiritually real, for lack of a better term. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, especially in the last chapter where john is having his own conversion and it's very for lack of a better word theatrical it's very imagistic he's kind of traveling between different places that you know are not like on the the current plane of existence and i think that that ritual is a big component of conversion i mean you know talking about baptism yeah that's that's entirely ritual yes 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 (laughs) Surely there is nothing that being dunked in room temperature bath water actually does for your soul, but it's about it's about deciding to do it and then doing it publicly. Yes. Um, I think in this, the world that these characters occupy, it is not voluntary, or at least does not feel voluntary, right? Mm-hmm. They, he, he describes, all of them describe it as kind of being at the at the bottom of this pit and then feeling like the only option is to cry for salvation and, and then and then receive it. Um, yeah. But that that comes out of this highly expressive language that Baldwin, I'm sure, had mastered being a preacher himself at 17. Um, so, yeah, I, I just kind of found that interesting throughout the book. And it did lose me a couple times. Sure. Like, I had to reread the beginning of Aunt Florence's chapter a couple times just to figure out at what point in her life we were um, and how that factored in into John's story. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think overall the book is about, like I said, it's about guilt and it's about whether or not you can actually achieve redemption and salvation in the world that is given to you. Can you? I don't know. I don't know that any of the three adult quote unquote characters have. Uh, Baldwin seems to seems to be making them very empathetic, but in very innately flawed characters. Characters who are totally unhappy, or not not totally unhappy, but definitely w- constantly wrestling with the choices they've made in their lives. So human, yes, very human. <laughs> so uh, they're people, <laughs> yeah. But in, in no way, like even though they say they have achieved salvation and. That, you know, everyone in this church, they are referred to as saints. Like, once you have been baptized, you are a saint. Um, capital, l- lowercase s. You are just, the voices of the saints are the voices of the congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And once you've achieved that, there, there is this implied salvation if you continue to live your life the right way. But the book is using these background chapters to illuminate the ways in which these people may still not be on the right path. Uh, yeah, and, and and that kind of thing can differ depending on the branch of Christianity you believe in. Like there there are some that think salvation is a thing which must continually be reaffirmed or renewed. And there are some who think, you know, you've done it once and so now you've done it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one, once you're saved, you're just saved and that's it. It's, I don't know, I feel, I feel like I've been talking a lot about my own personal experiences because it's something that I've, I don't know, something that I've thought about a lot because, I don't know, when I, when I was a kid, like, the people at church, like, pastors, whoever, they, they seemed infallible. Mm-hmm. And then I grew up and it became clear that they were just people like me <laughs> yeah and what does that and mean and what and what did i know about anything <laughs> and just like i don't know what what is your what what reading this book like your reaction personally or like your experiences how did that inform what you got out of the book yeah i feel like i am a church tor- tourist uh in a lot of ways i was not raised in a family that went to church on any regular basis um not even on we did not once i reached maybe three or four i don't even think there was a church that we quote unquote belonged to um or went to on holidays or anything like that so i was not raised in a non-religious or you know it was a christian household but by no means were we observing anything other than easter and christmas on a regular basis yeah but i mean like a christian household in the sense that you know, if you're a white middle class family, you're just probably going to be vaguely Christian by default. Yeah, you know, and yeah. and not not leaning too hard into or against it, right? Um, for lack for in some ways, kind of taking it for granted, and I, in some ways, envy people who have a stronger relationship with it, for better or for worse, just because I feel caught in the middle a lot. Like after I graduated from college, I took a job singing in a, in an Episcopal church. Mm-hmm. And it was a wildly different experience than anything I'd ever had, right? Yeah. Uh, it was very fascinating and very interesting uh, and curious and illuminating and all sorts of other adjectives I could keep going on with. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's... <laughs> but not necessarily personal, right? It sounds like you've never, you know, you've never been confronted with that decision. Like Yes. In this, mm-hmm. in this book, generally, and I think in a lot of people's lives, they are bad like quote-unquote bad in the in the eyes of christianity and then and and i'm generalizing no no that's fine they're like sinners who see the light and become clean or people who are raised in religious households and grow up and become disillusioned and you and you never had the opportunity to get on one side of that fence or the other <laughs> yeah I, that fence was not i was not even like driven up near that fence like no yeah, one took you me like to that you fence. saw it maybe yeah. but i saw i saw that fence in other people's yards let's say you never had to like mow near it or anything nope, <laughs> nope. My, my my yard grown up didn't even have a fence like you literally talk to the wilson on the other side of that fence <laughs> like literally my neighbors had a fence we did not have a fence um we had some trees <laughs> that i could walk right through uh, so yeah, I, I think for me, I, I approach, I instinctively approach it from a literary standpoint or like a, I don't know, like a, I'm interested in how it shapes a person's worldview. Right. And and I think you've heard a lot about yes. the ways that it can shape a person's worldview. Yes. Like I think, but maybe you don't relate directly no. to any one person's story. No. Um, I think in this book in particular, this this undercurrent of fire and brimstone and and guilt and redemption kind of heightens any action that you might have into biblical proportions. And I think that's a fascinating and potentially scary world to live in, right? Right, because like your actions are not just a thing that you do. It's like, it's, here's the latest skirmish in the war between God and the devil. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, and this is coming at a time in the in the early 20th century where I think in the Pentecostal tradition, at least, uh, or, or at least in some Baptist traditions, as I was reading earlier today, <laughs> uh, we were on the verge of the potential end times um, from some people's point of view. And I think World War I and, probably had something to do with that. Yeah. But I mean, there there are certain branches of it that think that the end times are just perpetually imminent. And I... I say that as somebody who, I don't know, like I, I, I am conflicted about how much to get into this, but I've, it's fine. I have, I have known people who have said, you know, like the end times are coming. You gotta get right. And they've actually like meant it. Yeah. Like, yeah. like the, like that they're imminent, you know? Well, but then I look at the news, Andrew. I do look at the news, and I think some... the news has been always bad, though. Like if if you, it's a Ugh. <laughs> no, that's fair. I know, I, I know. You just like if you if you look at anything, and you are coming at it with this preconceived notion that you know the end times are coming. You can look at the news from any given day and say, okay, this and this and this is evidence that the end times are coming. Yes, that's fair. And I think I think that's people have preconceived notions about things, and so they, I don't know, so they extrapolate, or so they they mold what they see and what they process to fit whatever worldview it is that they're comfortable. Well, and, with. and I was I wanted to lead to a sense of we form schemas about the world and and see patterns in behavior based on what we are how we are primed to see the world, right? Like I know plenty of people who. Say they're say the central text in their life is Shakespeare. Well, they have a Shakespearean quote for every situation. They have, in the same way that people who are devout, you know, readers of the Bible have a, a biblical quote for every situation, right? Yeah, I mean, I have a Simpsons quote for pretty much anything. I've so. noticed. I have a Seinfeld <laughs> quote for you know. What does that say about us? I guess uh, I don't, that that we're bad. We're bad. <laughs> Or you have like a baseball play an analogy for every situation. Like who yeah, knows? Yeah, home run. Yeah. <laughs> hit you hit, hit a triple. I don't know. Up the third baselines. Base. Who's who's on first? Um, third base. <laughs> who comes to pick up his money? Yes, his wife. What? What are we saying? Um, <laughs> so I think we we can form schemas and start to see the world based on on what the dominant perhaps text or or map we have for the world around us right i think that's something that this book lays out in a very specific way and in a very personal and individual way through these characters which i think is well worth encountering by, yeah, by any yeah. reader um we're we're short on time but i don't want to shortchange some of the race relation stuff that he gets into so i just want to give yeah. you a couple snippets of it yeah, hit me. I'll try not to interrupt with irrelevant things. No, the, everything's for been... For once. Everything, well, well, that's part of the show, so you do what you can. Um, <laughs> one of the kind of most heartbreaking examples of this comes in uh, Elizabeth's chapter, who is, again, John's mom. She was, uh, when she moved to New York with John's father, Richard, uh, they were a young couple living in New York City. Uh, they hadn't moved in together, uh, but she had gotten pregnant and she didn't tell him yet because she didn't want to pressure him in, into any sort of relationship or, or marriage more so than what they had. Uh, they were not living what the book ascribes as a very Christian life. And so she wasn't quite sure what to do with that. But she loved him a lot and, and didn't want to push him away. He goes out one night and he's on a subway station uh, just kind of minding his own business. And two other guys, uh, two other black men who have robbed some store or believed to have robbed some store kind of run up to him and then the white owners of the store who are chasing those guys lump him in with those criminals or some right. purported criminals mm -hmm. uh, he eventually goes free he's proven innocent or at least proven not guilty uh, in a court of law but he was like severely beaten by the police uh, and had a real rough go of it and ends up uh, committing suicide based on that trauma and i think that that mirrors part of baldwin's experience is that he was at the age of 10 beaten by police officers yes. yeah who i am 100 percent sure presumed he was guilty until 
you know, proven is. Yes, of course. The reverse of the way that it's supposed to work. So get it, getting back to disillusionment with the American dream. Yeah, and, and so Elizabeth's character, her kind of internalized take on racism is that there are no redeemable white people and, and, and the system has totally forsake or forsook uh, all black people. Um, Gabriel, John's father, you know, has dreams of exacting violent revenge on white people after witnessing you know lynching and and violence in the south but they kind of white people label him as you know a a good black person because he's he's a preacher and he's respectful and won't cause any trouble and he kind of has to live with that and his own kind of impotent feelings that he can't do more right or he can't afford to have a more violent reaction to the world around him so he takes it out on his family uh and his, John's Aunt Florence has this kind of view that other blacks are beneath her, right? Are, are common and are sinful and low. And this, the, her religion and, and her own views of herself kind of separate her from other uh, African-Americans in her community. Yeah, and that's totally applicable. Like you, you have people who, you know, both black and white people who are who are like... You know, black people are fine, but not that kind of black people. Yeah. You know, like there are those internal divisions that spring up that, I don't know, that that both groups have a hard time dealing with. Yeah. and For one reason or another. Well, and you don't, and that comes up to with, I think when we we were talking about gentrification on the Bossy Pants episode, is that when we were talking about this? Man, we are all over we are the map. all over the map lately. Um, yeah, I think that was when we talked about gentrification, and that was when we were kind of talking about that skeevy issue of like sections of different populations being okay or not, and like when you are developing an area, does that mean that you're you know pushing out the parts of the culture that you don't like, or are you liter or are you only kind of just making things safer, or? You know, are you reforming people to fit your view of of what a quote unquote good citizen is, or are you just kind of learning to live side by side? That very absolutist view of uh, people and their where they come from, as well as you know conventional morality, can can lead to a whole host of problems. Um, I don't know. I the it's a really powerful and moving book that I did. I that I just. At times, I didn't know what to do with it. Like, it was just going. Well, it just deals with some heavy stuff. Like, <laughs> if you're going to make, like, what, if you're going to make a list, like a top three list about heavy stuff, uh-huh. it's going to be race, religion, like Kirk versus Picard. Like, those are the three, <laughs> those are the three things. I, w- <laughs> I, was, I almost dove in there to give you the actual like third thing that probably what is the actual because i just blanked and and put something in there so what is the actual probably probably gender relations which is covered in this book gender relations and then maybe like economic relations is a fourth like there's a i don't (laughs) kirk versus picard is actually not up there a lot like gabriel's (laughs) i can't or star wars versus star trek i suppose Right, Ugh. that's Star Trek. Obviously, uh, obviously, it's Star Trek on Andrew's half of this podcast. Um, that's a whole another. It's a whole another episode. We'll read some novelizations and get back to you. <laughs> uh, but you know the ways that men and women manipulate each other within these systems is, is present throughout the book. Um, we we don't have time to go into it, but uh, sexual violence factors into the book, and and how we treat people who are victims of that, and whether or not like. Whether or not a character gets kind of bonus morality points for how well they treat someone like that is is its own issue. Because uh, once you once you enter that system where you are like all of your good actions and all of your bad actions like push you in these very important directions, this scorekeeping starts to take place. Um, at least in this book, you, you mm-hmm. get this sense that. Like, well, well, I did this, so it so it atones for that, and I did this, so it atones for that. Where it's it's not just I confessed this bad thing I did. It's oh, I also did this other thing that I deem good enough to cancel out these other bad things. 
um, yeah. which goes back to our earlier discussion about like compartmentalizing yourself um, for better or for worse. Yeah. Often. Who worse. does? Who doesn't do that? Like. No, I do it with food. <laughs> I ate this. <laughs> I ate this salad, so it means I can eat this pizza to, later. I don't know if that's in the spirit that we are talking about right now, but sure, okay. <laughs> well, but you, I do it with with. Uh, issues of of work ethic too where it's like oh well i did this part of this thing so now i can go off and you know mess around with this thing or oh yeah yeah, yeah. I can like let I, that i'm i'm slide. doing that i am doing that this week like i killed myself last week and so this week i'm just gonna gonna maybe coast a little bit not a lot just a little bit that that constant push and pull with yourself is something that regardless of context uh i think you can identify with in this book yeah man heavy stuff this week thanks for making lots it of heavy lifting i think you need to you need a team lift these themes <laughs> i need a spotter <laughs> thanks for being my spotter on this episode oh no problem so if you <laughs> want to correct some of the things i said uh or you want to weigh in on kirk versus picard you can write in to overduepod at gmail.com or you can tweet your favorite star trek picks to twitter.com slash overdue pod like pictures or episode pics either okay i guess uh you can also post stuff uh to our facebook page facebook.com slash overdue pod i want to give a shout out to jason uh who was blowing up on our facebook page this week uh giving us writing tips from the cia uh <laughs> from danny boyle's frankenstein starring sir is he a sir benedict cumberbatch is he a knight yet I don't know that they've knighted him, but let's go ahead and like preemptively knight. Yeah, him. <laughs> he'll he'll be knighted. Uh, and an essay from Joan Didion, uh, who I think we should probably cover on this podcast soon enough. Yeah, we'll get there. Uh, so thanks thanks to that, and thanks to people who are tweeting about the show, uh, including Lee and Jill and J Deep, which is a great name, um, and a bunch of other people. <laughs> Ariel was tweeting about the show, uh, as well as uh, the Dutch someone named. The Right Honorable Duchess Cadbury. I don't know if they're a real duchess or not. Right. Maybe I, she has something to do with cream eggs, I think. <laughs> or bunnies. Um. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so thanks, Bunny Duchess, for tweeting about the show. Yeah, I mean, like, let's give a special shout-out to Lee, who is talking about our show all the time. On the reg. amazing. He's talking about like mowing our lawn while listening to the back catalog, which, which is probably more than I could do with our show. <laughs> yeah so oh and jen jen tweeted about the show too i don't think we talked yes. about jen last week so. it's just it's super flattering it's super great we really really love everybody where can they find all those show. back episodes andrew um if they want to listen to our back catalog they can find them all up on overduepodcast.com um up there we have links to our rss feed and our itunes page that you can use to subscribe to the show if you subscribe in itunes um, if you could take a second to rate and review us, that really helps us out with the rankings. It makes us feel good. It's just it's just a good deal all around for everybody. And then um, also up on OverduePodcast.com, we have Amazon links to the books that we have read and the books that we are going to read. If you click those and buy the books, whether you want to read along or whether you want to actually read one of the things that we are butchering, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we get a little, little little tiny cut of the of the profits on that one, and that helps defray our hosting costs and other things that you know make the show possible. So we really appreciate that. Andrew, what are you reading for next week? Next week, I am going to try. I'm not going to promise that I will have read this, but I'm going to try to tackle Pride and Prejudice oh, by man. Jane Austen. Because the last time we did an Austen episode was Persuasion. Uh, Persuasion, I think. And I don't think, I mean, of course, every episode of this podcast is amazing, but <laughs> like, relatively speaking, I feel like that one maybe was not as amazing as some of the other We had not ones. hit especially, our stride. Especially, yeah, especially in the eyes of, like, Austin fans, because we, I don't think we had started talking about the authors as much at that point. Yeah. So we really owe it to ourselves and to you guys to do more Austin research. So I figured, what better way to do that than by reading her capital T thing? <laughs> Send in some Austin stuff. Get Get us educated so that we don't end up 
begging to be educated afterwards. Or just yell at us. Like, <laughs> come on, bring it. I can take it. Yeah, we I'm can, a grown up. We can take it. We got thick skin. <laughs> All right. That will happen next week. And until then, everybody, thank you for listening and try to be happy. Let's okay. Know. Let's let's make let's to take it out of out of heavy town for a quick second. I'm sorry. Let's take a <laughs> Wait, look at the fact can that I, eighteen can year I olds can I'm vote. Sorry, I, have to, I have to pee real quick. Okay, is that okay? Yeah. Then we can come back to eighteen year olds. Yes. Okay. Sorry. No, you're good. <laughs>